0: Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, it says, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In this 26th chapter, Jesus and The disciples are celebrating the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover. The chapter, you'll remember, began with a prediction that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified in verses 1 and 2. The plotting of Caiaphas and the religious leaders and Judas in verses 3 through 5 and 14 and 16. You'll remember that his body was going to be anointed with a precious ointment, a fragrant ointment in preparation for his upcoming burial in verses 6 through 13. And you'll remember that Jesus instructed his disciples to find a place to celebrate the Passover In verses 17 through 19, and then he drops the bombshell revelation that there was still a traitor in their midst. And even at that late date, Jesus was giving Judas an opportunity to turn from his sin. To turn from his plans of betrayal. And so now the Lord is going to institute what has gone by many names throughout church history. It's been called the time of the breaking of bread, like in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. and in First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, it's been called Holy Communion in First Corinthians 10:16, the table of the Lord, First Corinthians 10:21. And of course, what I go by, and I prefer, the Lord's Supper, which it was called in First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. And this Lord's Supper is a final meal that Jesus will have with his disciples. But it will also serve as a celebration to be remembered in observance of his death and his future coming. And so the Passover will fulfill in type and shadow what will become a new feast, a celebration by the saints. Jesus will be the Paschal Lamb. And for many of you, you'll look at this tiny wafer, and you'll look at this very limited amount of juice, and you'll say to yourself, how in the world could you possibly describe this as a feast? Especially coming off Thanksgiving, where many of you really had a physical feast. I don't know what you had or where you did or what you participated in. You might have had traditional lamb or you might have had turkey or shredded beef or what else did we have? Baked ham, yeah. Yams, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, Who knows? You have all of this food. It comes before you and you eat until you can't eat no more. I remember when my Nona, my Italian grandmother, would prepare Thanksgiving. We would have pasta and turkey. We would have brujol, which is this kind of wonderful breading wrapped in brujol. And and you would have all these wonderful Italian bread. Dishes that were wonderful and you would eat and eat until you can't eat anymore and my Nona would say, do you want more? And if you said no, she gave you a little more. And if you said yes, she gave you a lot more. And at this spiritual supper, even though you may not be able to see it, contained in this Very small wafer and this limited amount of juice is a spiritual feast. It's interesting to me, it's been often pointed out that Christianity is different from the rest of the world's religions. In our celebration of our founder's death, we call it a feast. We live in a world that celebrates birthdays and feast days that mark great historical events or great discoveries or or great victories. Most people see in the death of someone a time of sorrow and a time of regret But for us, we see this as a time of joy and satisfaction, and for good reason. I think it was A.W. Pink who wonderfully said that all of God's blessings have their origin in the cross of Christ. And I think that that's exactly true. Do you remember last Thursday? What do you remember being thankful for? Were you thankful for your salvation? Were you thankful for your family? Were you thankful for the ministry that God entrusted to you? But in the end, all blessing, all blessing, comes from the fact that Jesus makes blessing possible. Freedom from sin, forgiveness and hope. Paul makes clear the early Christians believed that this celebration was to be done often he also made it clear that it was to be a permanent observation in 1 Corinthians 11:26 he said for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death till he comes whatever else it is it is a proclamation that jesus died but it's also a celebration that he will return. So we begin, Jesus takes the bread, it's a voluntary death. Look what it says in verse 26, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. The meal was well underway. Jesus takes the unleavened loaf, and he blesses it, and he breaks it. The blessing that you read in the passage is a reference to the Jewish prayer observed at Passover, where for centuries the prayer would be made, Blessed are you, Lord our God, who brings forth bread from the earth. For the Jewish person in the celebration, it was understood that bread was God's gift. And because bread was God's gift, it was irreverent to cut it with a knife. It had to be broken. And so like our savior, he is the bread that came down from heaven, given by God, broken for our sins. Jesus is going to take the ordinary elements of the Passover, bread and wine, and then he's going to fill them with profound significance forever. And clearly Jesus is speaking in figurative language, in metaphorical language, in symbolic language. The reason why we know this is that Jesus has not yet given his body. It's interesting to me how much Controversy surrounds these simple words. We'll talk about that in just a minute, but I just want to remind you of something. That it has been typified as grain, grain given by God, grain that is crushed. It's crushed in order to be made available to the people who are going to participate. It was the ancient church father Augustine who wrote, quote, Christ. ...bore himself in his hands when he said, this is my body. You'll probably note that in many religious traditions... ...it was believed that the body, not metaphorically or symbolically... ...but actually became the body of Jesus. When Augustine says Christ bore himself in his hands... Some people have argued that from a very early time, the church believed that this was literally true. I'm going to argue exactly the opposite that when Jesus speaks these words, that the people that he's speaking to, that he himself had something in mind, and that the people listening had something in mind. Did Jesus take it literally? Or figuratively, Did the disciples celebrating the Passover with him take it literally or figuratively? In the Passover meal, the Jewish interpretation of the Passover bread said, quote, this is the bread of our affliction. The affliction of our ancestors, which they ate when they came out of Egypt. Every Jewish person observing the Passover would have understood that it was figurative, metaphorical, and symbolic. Taking literally that the bread was the bread that came out of Egypt or that it actually became the affliction of the Jewish people would have meant that this bread was already a thousand plus years old. So the lifting up and the explanation of this particular cup would have occurred after what was called the cup of sanctification. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. There were four cups during the Passover. But before I talk about that, there are three main views held by Christians concerning this thing called the Lord's Supper. The first view is that the bread and wine actually become Christ's body and blood. The reason why that seems to be the case that makes the least amount of sense is Jesus is standing right there. His body is there. His blood is flowing in his veins. The second view is that the bread and wine remain unchanged, but that Christ is spiritually present by faith. The third view is that the bread and the wine remain unchanged, but are lasting memorials of Christ's sacrifice. All views hold the same, that the bread and the wine remain unchanged. In the first view, where it is believed by some religious people or some religious traditions that it becomes the body and blood, in the Roman Catholic tradition, it is believed that the bread and the wine remain retain the features of bread and wine, but in fact literally become the body and blood of Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that this is a view that might have been held by the early Roman people making fun of and confusing the Christian tradition because Christians talked about eating the body and drinking the blood, and the Roman Empire came to mean that they thought that Christians were involved in secret celebrations that included cannibalism, but nothing could be further from the truth. In the Jewish culture and society, cannibalism was forbidden. The eating of human flesh, the drinking of human blood would have been deemed disgusting, all Christians believe Christ commanded his followers to observe communion, whatever it means, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 26. Everyone believes that just like physical food nourishes and strengthens your body, the Lord's Supper nourishes the body of the individual believer and the congregation as a whole. It was a way to proclaim forgiveness of sin and, and the hope of Jesus's return, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. It was also meant to create a strong bond of spiritual fellowship. Communion wasn't supposed to be done singularly or individually, but corporately. And so it teaches new believers about what Jesus has done. And it's supposed to refresh the seasoned saint. And so it reminds us that we're united together with a common Savior in a common faith, because our faith is in Christ. So even though there are great differences of opinion concerning the nature of the elements, all concede that Christ's death was voluntary. In other words, the moment that Jesus says, this is my body, he's going to make it abundantly clear that he isn't going to go to the cross reluctantly or perversely or because he was caught off guard or taken by surprise. Jesus is going to go to his death voluntarily. He is a willing sacrifice. In the ancient world, you'll remember that the Passover lamb or the other sacrifices that were offered were innocent, and so is Jesus. But the lamb isn't cognizant. A lamb doesn't get to participate in its own death. Can you imagine if a lamb could speak? Would the lamb go, hey, would you like to be sacrificed for sin? Would you think the lamb would go, "Mm -hmm, no. Or, maybe not. Lambs can't speak. They can't advocate on their own behalf. Jesus is very, very much aware of what his sacrifice means. And he's very, very aware of what it will do. You'll remember that the Seder looked back on the Jewish deliverance from the bondage of Egypt and its slavery, but now this supper is going to look forward to the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus, and so whatever else this supper means, it means that Jesus is going to die on Calvary's cross. He is going to do it willingly and voluntarily because he's going to be able to see into a future that only He can see, a future that includes you, your heart, your circumstance, your life, your emptiness, your need for grace, your need for forgiveness, your need for hope. Jesus is going to pay the penalty for our sins. The Supper is going to point to His coming glory. And so when we participate in this supper, we demonstrate our gratitude for Christ's voluntary sacrifice on our behalf. And it's supposed to strengthen us in our faith. And you'll note Jesus takes the cup. It's not only a voluntary death, but it's a sacrificial death. Look what it says. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it. All of you. Obviously, the cup is a reference to the element that it contained. Not the cup itself. Again, in Christian tradition, the cup took on magical powers. In the medieval ages, they came to call it the chalice of the Lord or the Holy Grail. But there was nothing magical about the cup. It wasn't the artifact. Of the cup, but rather it was what the cup contained, the fruit of the vine, and like the grain, it too would be crushed. In Luke's gospel, there are a mention of two cups. In Luke 22, verse 17 and 20. Now we know that the Passover contained four cups of this diluted red wine. The first cup was called the cup of thanksgiving. When they would begin a Seder service, which means to set an order, or the Passover, typically in the Jewish culture and society, a woman would come and she would light the candles. The leader would raise this cup and give thanks and bless it. It was known to the Jewish people as the cup of sanctification. And the Lord in the Old Testament promised the Jewish slaves, I will bring you out in the first cup. In the second cup, it was also called the cup of plagues. The Lord promised, I will free you. In the third cup, it was the cup of redemption. The Lord said to the Jewish people, I will redeem you. And finally, there was a cup. It was called the cup of praise, but it was also called the cup of acceptance, where the Bible says, the Lord says, I will take you. That is, I'm going to take you from this place of slavery, and I'm going to take you to the place where you belong. Now, we have every reason to believe that this cup that's spoken of in our text isn't the first cup or even the second cup, I'm going to suggest to you that almost certainly it's the third cup. It's the cup of redemption. The leader would typically take the second cup, the cup of plagues, but no one would drink from it until after what was known as the Haggadah would take place. The Haggadah means the telling. It means the telling of the story of the liberation of the Jewish people. It would be at that point that a child would ask what was known as the four questions. It was really one question asked in four different ways. The four different ways would include, why is this night different from all other nights? So the question would include, On other nights, we may eat either leavened or unleavened bread. First question. On other nights, we can eat all kinds of herbs. But on this night, we only eat bitter herbs. The third question. On other nights, we do not dip our vegetables even one time. But on this night, we dip twice. This is proof positive that Hispanic people are not Jews. Mexican people dip all year round. They take the tortilla, they take the chip, they take the guacamole, and they dip all year round. The fourth question, on other nights, we eat either sitting or reclining, but on this night, we only recline. So the question repeated, why is this night different from all other nights? Because it's the night, as you know, of liberation, of redemption, and reconciliation. And I'm going to suggest to you that for this Seder, for this Passover, it would be even more different than any other time. So what does Jesus mean when he says, drink from it, all of you, I'm amazed at the Greek construction of this very interesting sentence because the verb itself requires a meaning that would include drink it. Drink it in such a way that you drink it all. Drink it. Drink it down to the last drop. Now, it's interesting to me If that's the case, then the cup would have had to be emptied and then filled and emptied and then filled and emptied and then filled. And I think that there is a type and a picture here where Jesus will, in fact, drink the cup that will be assigned to him. Remember, he says, this is the cup my father has given me. You'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane later, he's going to pray I'm praying that this cup would pass from me. He prays the prayer three times. Three times he asks for the cup to pass. Three times the Lord says no. And he's going to drink this cup and he's going to drink it down to the last drop. It becomes a type and a and a picture of the sacrifice that he himself is going to to experience more likely, I'm going to suggest to you that more likely it means drink it, all of you, in the sense of participation. Not some of you, not most of you, all of you. All of you drink it in what way? Drink it as a type and a picture of the voluntary sacrifice that I will be making in the not too distant future. He's going to leave in the minds of the disciples the importance of this celebration. And so, whatever else communion means, it shouldn't mean the time that you opt out. I can't do this. I can't eat this. I can't drink this. I can't participate. Oh, yes, you can. You can. Remember what we're doing. We're identifying with Jesus. We're declaring our love and loyalty to Jesus. We're acknowledging his voluntary death. We're we're acknowledging his sacrificial death. We know that it's both voluntary and sacrificial because look what it says in the very next sentence. Jesus is going to introduce the new covenant in verse 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The Lord takes the unleavened Passover bread and the Passover cup and he will now imbue it and fill it with a brand new meaning. And what is that meaning? These objects become outward, visible expressions of his coming work of sacrifice for them and fellowship with them. The bread, the symbol of his body broken, the cup, a symbol of his shed blood. Look, my blood of the new covenant or the new testament, which is shed for the remission of sins. And each and every word is important. The word new is There were two ancient Greek words that would describe new. One would be new like it's never, ever, ever happened. And one would be new in the sense of new to the people who are participating. Here it means new in the sense of unique, brand new. The word was omitted in a few 3rd century or 4th century manuscripts. And so some people have suggested that the word was inserted here. But we know for certain in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 20, it reads, quote, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new, same word, covenant in my blood, which is shed for you without controversy, without dispute, Everyone agrees that it's in the manuscript. So when he says that this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant, in what way is this new? The new covenant is unconditional. The old covenant was conditioned. On submission and obedience to the sacrifices. The new covenant is unconditional and ratified not in the blood of animals, not in the blood of lambs and goats, but in the blood of Jesus. And by the way, this covenant, when he says it's the covenant, that means it's an agreement. Now typically an agreement or a covenant is established by two parties. One party arranges the covenant. The other party agrees to it or both parties declare the terms of the agreement. But this isn't this covenant. Jesus is establishing the covenant. This is the new covenant. It is established by God. It's established by Jesus. Here's the new arrangement. The new arrangement is established by Jesus and cannot be altered by the other party. God Jesus establishes the covenant. Human beings really don't establish the covenant and they only have two options in order to embrace this covenant or not to embrace it. In other words, here's the human response. The human response must be I accept it or I reject it. That's the only response. Of, that is allowed, but there is no third response. In other words, human beings don't have the right to alter the covenant. When Jesus says, I establish this. This is the I will redeem you cup. Now I want you to understand something. Jesus understands that his death is going to be Voluntary. Jesus understands that his death is going to be sacrificial. And again, in the old covenant, a lamb was brought or other animals were brought. God agreed to overlook, but not forever, people's sin, which which they brought to the priests for sacrifice. In the time of the sacrificial system, the agreement between God and man was sealed by the blood of animals, Exodus 24.8 animal blood, we learn from the book of Hebrews, is incapable of providing a permanent solution to the problem of sin because it cannot remove sin. It can cover it, but it cannot remove it. There's a lot of things that we can do with our sin. We can, like some of our friends, pretend that there is no such thing that it's some sort of religious or social construct that people make up in order to get you to do what they want. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that sin is that thought or that action which God prohibits or forbids. In the old covenant, it could never cleanse sin. In the old covenant, it was often repeated. In the new covenant, it will never be repeated. It will be good for all eternity under this covenant. Jesus will die once. He will not die over and over and over again. He will die once. It will be the satisfying solution and the permanent solution. It will be good for all eternity, it says in Hebrews nine twenty three through 28. And so in the ancient world of the prophets before the coming of Jesus, the prophets looked forward in time and space when god himself would provide the permanent solution to the problem of the dark heart and the empty heart and the wicked heart no wonder john the last great old testament prophet looking at jesus would say behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world in john 1:29 the old covenant was a shadow The new covenant, the substance. Jesus is our sufficient sacrifice for sin. And you'll note, he says, it is shed. Look what it says. The covenant which is shed or poured out. Don't overlook that statement. Here, shed is a reference to the violence Jesus isn't going to die in his sleep. Jesus isn't going to be hit by a cart. Jesus isn't going to be beheaded. He's not going to be hit by some object. He is going to die, and he's going to die the most brutal death. He's going to die on a cross. Jesus' death is going to be voluntary. Jesus' death is going to be sacrificial. Jesus' death is going to be violent and brutal. And those who accept the sacrifice and believe him can receive the spiritual nourishment that will satisfy the soul, the emptiness inside of your heart, The darkness can go away. We're reminded that salvation is always by blood. In Hebrews 9.22, the writer of Hebrews says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. And it can't be just any kind of blood. The blood has to be innocent. In Hebrews 9:14 it says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Unquote. It was his way of saying that this blood, this innocent blood, can purge the guilt on the inside purge the inward person, purge the person who thinks that somehow he or she can have a right relationship with God if they just do their very, very best. The blood must be innocent. The blood must be shed. The blood must be applied. It says, In Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. The prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his blood. That's Revelation 1 5. But this blood serves perhaps as one of the most neglected themes in the modern world. We live in a culture and a society that has no stomach for sacrifice, especially a brutal sacrifice. The blood of Jesus was shed according to himself for remission. I want to draw your attention to that word remission. Look at it in the text. Do you know what it means? The Greek word is aphices. It was a beautiful Greek word. That word was used in the ancient cultures and the Greeks in ancient years. They would use this word to describe when they would go to the edge of the sea and they would send their loved one off in a boat and they would wave goodbye to the horizon because when a person gets on a boat and then they begin to sail out, Think about as far as you can see out into the ocean and you see the ship disappear and then you see the mast disappear and then you see the ship itself disappear. So aphi says came to to be that word that was used to describe the release, the release, the letting go, the release, the setting, saying goodbye. It was also translated forgiveness. It was something that you let go of. You let go of it and it disappears. And so it came to meet the cancellation of the guilt of sin. It came to mean forgiveness of every sort. And we could spend an entire study on the distinct and direct blessings that come from Christ's blood. But this is the most important. It releases us. It sets free. It lets go. It releases us from our obligation that we owe to God. What do we owe God? We owe God a perfect life. But none of us have lived that perfect life. We owe God a clean conscience, but none of us has it. We owe God a sin-free life, but none of us gives him that. And so the blood remits, releases, redeems. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood That's what it says in Ephesians 1.7. That's what it says in Colossians 1.14. That's what it says in 1 Peter 1.19. In whom we have redemption through his blood. We're bought back. The blood reconciles peace through his Blood of the cross, by whom he reconciles all things to himself, Colossians 1.20. The blood is the biblical basis of justification, much more than being justified by his blood, it says in Romans 5.19. The blood purges, removes the false sense of assurance or the self-assurance of dead works. How much more shall the blood of Christ Purge your conscience from dead works, Hebrews 9.14. The book of Revelation records that we are made white by the blood of Jesus. That word white means the absence of stain. It means the absence of color. It means the absence of tint, which would mean the presence of some foul thing that would render its person unacceptable. And so when he uses that term, you are made white in the blood of Jesus, it means you've been made acceptable. Not unaccepted, accepted. We're given access to God, Hebrews ten nineteen. Boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We're brought near by the blood of, if he, of, of the Lamb, Ephesians 2, 13. Sanctified that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. We're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, in 1 John 1, 7. We experience victory by the blood of the Lamb, Revelation twelve eleven overcome him by the blood of the lamb and now all of a sudden we take the elements we look at this little piece of bread and we look at this simple bit of juice and we place it before us because who could have imagined that in those single elements you would find a spirit Have you ever seen a table set so spiritually enormous and gracious that you couldn't actually partic- participate in everything on the table imagine you see the table spread for before you it's the table of the lamb in front of you in front of you on the table is remission of your sins redemption of your soul reconciliation with the father justification before God the removal of guilt you are accepted you are given access you are made near you're given liberty justification sanctification cleansing and then victory and you're looking at the table and you go I don't know what to eat first eat what you need the most what is it that you need what's inside of your heart do you need forgiveness forgiveness Do you need redemption, reconciliation, justification? Do you need joy? Do you need hope? Do you need nearness? Do you, know, do you need to experience the nearness of God because he seems so far away? The ignorant and the uninformed, they say, let's not talk about the blood Let's not talk about his sacrifice. But Jesus will talk about his sacrifice. The disciples will talk about his sacrifice. The saints through the ages will talk about his sacrifice. They understood what so many people seem to forget. People come to God by faith in Jesus's sacrifice that's why paul writes in romans 321 the death of jesus has made us accepted and so look what it says in verse 29 jesus promises this future celebration he says but i say to you i will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom the Lord Jesus offers to drink the wine in the future kingdom. The fruit of the vine speaks of joy and celebration and blessing. And now we discover that joy and celebration and blessing is made available because of a voluntary sacrifice. Because it is a purposeful sacrifice, and because it is a sufficient sacrifice. It's interesting how much attention is devoted to the controversy surrounding the text. Okay, do we use leaven or unleavened bread? What happens if we use gluten-free elements? Does that negate the whole thing and does it render it inoperative? Should the juice be grape? What if we use some other juice? Should it be fermented or unfermented? Clearly, historically, the bread is unleavened. The wine is fermented because in those days, all wine is fermented to some degree. Those who argue that the leaven spoils the type must realize the same is true of the presence or the absence of fermentation. The reason we focus on the elements and we focus on the division instead of the one being represented. We fail to see what Jesus demands that we see which is himself. I need you to look at me. Jesus is telling his disciples. This is my body. This is my blood. This is my sacrifice. It's interesting to me too. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5... Verse 7 and 8, Paul wants us to be absolutely certain that we understand the true spiritual meaning of what it is that we're reading. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, it says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In sincerity, that is a a word that comes from a Latin word, sine, without. Sere, which means wax. It means it is what it is. You see what you get. It is simple and singular and pure and true. It isn't the leaven in the bread. It isn't the alcohol in the wine. It isn't the absence of the leaven, or it isn't the absence of the alcohol. It's the presence of Jesus in the place where we are. It's the presence of Jesus in this place, at this time, offering you what only He can give. George Herbert wrote Love is that liquor. Sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. We experience something in our taste bud. But it isn't just simply the presence of the bread or the juice. The Book of Common Prayer concludes, quote, An outward and visible sign of an inward spiritual grace that's given to us. And so what does the Lord's Supper, what does the King's Supper really mean? It's an act of worship. We worship the Lord when we participate in the Supper. And we decline to worship the Lord. When we decline to participate in the Supper... We worship the Lord because of his death, a voluntary death in verse 26, a sacrificial death in verse 27, a sufficient death in verse 28. It's sufficient to take away our sin, to forgive us forever, to reconcile us to, us, to our Father, to reconcile us to each other, But it would also serve not just as an act of worship, but as an act of witness. In what way? When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we're telling the world and everyone who watches us, we're telling everyone when we, when we take this, we're telling everyone that Jesus loved me, that Jesus died for me, that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus gives us victory in his future kingdom in verse 29. Jesus promised to come back to life and then he does come back to life. He says, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to return and look what it says i will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom it has to mean there's a future celebration it can't mean anything else it must mean that we participate in this now, but we have every reason to believe that Jesus, the Jesus who's come back to life, the Jesus is going to take you to heaven, that he's going to drink with you in that future kingdom. Paul knew all of this when he wrote in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death a voluntary death, a sacrificial death, a violent death, until he comes. What is it that we're proclaiming? He died for our sins. His death is a work of grace. His death is a work of love. It results in my salvation. It is worship and it is a witness. But it's also something else. Even if that were the only thing it was, it would be worth it. It is worship, and it is a witness, but it's also edification in what sense? Service, in what way? We remember the Lord's sacrifice. We remember Jesus on the cross. We're motivated to offer our bodies a holy and living sacrifice that is acceptable to God, like it says in Romans 12. We remember the words of Jesus. Look what it says. Take and eat, verse 26. He took the cup And gave it to them and said, drink it, verse 27. Even though his death is voluntary and sacrificial and brutal. He's inviting you to participate. He will give himself. For us. And so the expectation It makes perfect sense that you would give yourself to each other. And in verse 30, look what it says. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Once everyone drank the third cup, they recited the second part of the chalel. And when they had sung a hymn, the chalel is the psalm from 115 to 118. We're not told which psalm they sang. Did they sing 115? Did they sing 116 or 17 or 18? Did they sing one of them or all of them? The text doesn't tell us. But the chalel of 115, which every Jew would have sung, not to us. O Lord, not unto us, but to your name, give glory. Have you ever sang that song? Not to us, but to yourself, be the glory, O Lord. In Psalm 116, at the opening of it, it says, The love I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplications, because he's inclined his ear towards me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surround me. The pangs of shoal lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord. I implore you to deliver my soul. 117, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you people. He is merciful in his kindness, his kindness towards us. The great truth of the Lord is that he endures forever. Praise the Lord. They sang the song, it would have taken about 15 minutes, moving at a brisk pace to leave the place where the supper has taken place, to go down to the Kidron, pass over the brook, running red with the blood of lambs that have been sacrificed throughout the day, and then make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we celebrate our spiritual feast. It may not look like much. If you placed it on the table and you said, this is what we have to eat. This is what we have to drink. The uninformed might say, I want more. I want something that will physically satisfy me. But if you want something that will spiritually satisfy you, if you want a table that is set before you with every good and perfect thing, cleansing of sin, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation to those who are estranged, we have a feast that's been set before us. We worship in what way? We accept God's work of grace in Christ. We acknowledge his death, his sacrificial death. We witness in what way? We're participating as a testimony that Jesus died for my sins, that he was resurrected in victory and power. And then we work in what way? We remember that we want to restore broken friendship and relationship. It's an opportunity to repent of our offenses, experience forgiveness of past grievances, and find a way to care about each other and minister to one another. Pray for one another. We're going to have communion at this time. I'm going to have Chris come out. We're going to sing a song. But before he does that, I want you to ask yourself this important question. What am I hungry for? What do I really, really want to eat and drink? And if that something is grace, mercy, mercy, Peace, forgiveness. Oh, and for dessert, hope, something sweet, something that will leave you feeling full. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. Lord, I pray for this time of communion, that, Lord, it would be a time of worship acceptable to you. Lord, we acknowledge your death, your sacrificial death, your sufficient death. Lord, we want to be witnesses after these original apostles. We want to participate in the supper as a testimony. We want everyone watching us to know that Jesus died for my sins and he was resurrected in power to secure my life and that he's going to return as my king. And Lord, I pray that it would edify every man and every woman who participates that it would restore broken friendships and relationships. Like the psalmist, Lord, we pray that you would search our hearts and know our souls, that you would try us and see if there's any wicked way in us, that you would lead us in the way of everlasting. Lord, like the saints of old, we pray that we would allow this bread and this cup to strengthen us in our commitment to you, our faith in you, and then our commitment and our faith and our willingness to be a part of each other's life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.